You're listening to the Winsight Podcast Network. Take your industry insights to the next level by becoming a restaurant business subscriber. Go to restaurantbusinessonline.com, click on the blue subscribe button in the upper right-hand corner, enter promo code PODCAST23, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-23, to get your first month of RB Basic for free. After promo period, current rates apply. Now, please enjoy this episode of A Deeper Dive. How do you dust off a brand that's been dead for 15 years? Hello, this is Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I speak with Paul Mangimelli, the owner of legendary restaurant brands, which owns Bennigan's and, apparently, Stankendale. The two brands' owner filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy in 2008. The Bennigan's franchise was rescued at the last minute from shutting down, and Paul later bought the chain and has operated ever since. But Steakendale shut down and hasn't been heard of since. But recently, Paul's company announced plans to open one in the Minneapolis suburb of Burnsville. And so I had to get him on the podcast to talk about it. So we talk about how you bring a brand back from the dead after 15 years and how rare that is. We also talk about why he thinks steak and ale can work and what is being done to make the brand relevant to a modern audience. So we're talking steak and ale on a deeper dive. So please have a listen. All right. I am here with Paul Mangimelli. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here with you, my friend. All right. So I uh, hear you're about to open Steak and Ale here in a few months. Is that true? The rumor is not only true and accurate, but it's been well received, not only in Minneapolis, but around the country and for that matter, around the world. Yeah, I'm really glad that's true, because otherwise the story we wrote on it would be uh, bad. So, um, so <laughs> I would I would like you to start this entire like. Let's go back, way back, uh, for years. You um, just tell us a story about how you came to take over Bennigan's and the Steak and Ale name. Okay, well, it's a great story, and uh, I'll try to hit the highlights. It was uh, back in 2011 that I came on board, uh, just a few years after the the Chapter Seven bankruptcy, which I keep getting reminded of repeatedly. And instead of talking about thriving and surviving and opening restaurants and and preserving the iconic nature of these brands, I keep hearing about this bankruptcy that happened so many years ago. It had nothing to do with the brand. It just had a lot to do with mismanagement of it. But I came on the scene around 2011 and I surveyed the, uh, there's only Bennigan's at the time, and I surveyed the Bennigan's and saw what a beautiful diamond Bennigan's was. Again, just being mismanaged. A lot of dirt on it, a lot of, a lot of mud, and all it had to do was to get back to um, preserving the culture uh, and then reconnecting the emotional connections. However, during that time, I also negotiated a management buyout, and I completed that in 2015. So in 2015, uh, with the help of my wife, myself, we purchased 100% of um, all the intellectual property and the franchising companies and all the entities that went with it. And then got busy and, and as you know, opened up Bennigan's on the fly for non-traditional venues, as well as during the pandemic, uh, we use it for host kitchens and ghost kitchen delivery. And always had to stake an ill intellectual property. So I thought, you know, um, I always loved it. I, I always thought that 
Norman Brinker, who was actually a friend of mine, never worked for the guy, uh, but we met on several occasions and we hit it off famously. Um, and I think it would, he would, he's looking down with a big smile saying that I ended up with the only two brands he ever created, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, but with Steak and Ale, look, it was the bridge way back in 1966 between fast food and fine dining. There really, at that point, was nothing. Certainly not a salad bar as well, or family friendly, or very affordable. And so I thought, boy, you know what? The, 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 we have a regenerative moment right now where we can not only bring back Steak and Ale, which is such an iconic brand, but also reattach those emotional connections. And I think you've read on some of the articles that we, I said, you know, am I, am I the only guy drinking a Kool-Aid or, you know, that my team and I, we, we became incestuous with our protection of the brand. And so I said, okay, let's start a Facebook page and see if anybody salutes it. 53,000 people are rooting for a brand that doesn't exist anymore, which I think communicates the right message. There's a lot of pent up demand. There's a lot of emotional pieces to this. And it, it spurred us to continue to work on the redevelopment. Now, you got to know that although we have some of the archival information, we had to basically recreate the whole thing for 21st century. So not only from a physical plant, but to the menu, to the layout, uh, to the reintroduction of the salad bar. And then what else can we do to bring something called, which is sorely missing today in casual dining and some other concepts, um, flair, energy, fun, vibe. Uh, here, here's, here's a good one, value proposition. And so we brought that back in the guise of a franchise vehicle. And I've talked to a lot of people, but, you know, even though I get beat up for not introducing it sooner, I had to be deliberate. I had to be hopefully a little bit intelligent in terms of who I'm going to partner with to reintroduce it. And so Roy Arnold came on the scene and, um, you know, he's a Marine colonel, retired, very experienced hotelier. And he and I hit it off as I have a military background as well. And so we talked the same language. I told him about my vision for Steak and Ale. And here we go. We're opening up in Burnsville. That is the abbreviated, abridged version. Uh, although, you know, I could, I could write another book about it. So you have a salad bar? Yes. Bringing back to salad bar, will you be playing 80s music? Uh, yep, we're going to salad, salad bar's coming <laughs> Fred's coming back. The mm -hmm. uh, Club is coming back. The Hawaiian chicken is coming back. But we're also going to do table-side salad. We're going mm -hmm. to do a table-side. When's the last time you saw table-side anywhere? We're doing uh, Irish coffee table-side. And so mm -hmm. from a brand standpoint in casual dining, um, I'm bringing back things that, you know, really delivered a message, really delivered value um, to the brands uh, that, again, were created in 1966 for Steak and Ale, 1976 for Bennigan's. There's a resiliency but this brand that has lasted all these decades um, of uh, being able to bring it back with my team and, um, and our franchise partners that have done a phenomenal job through some tough years right now. I don't think it's ever been tough. I, I, I kiddingly say that we have earned our PhD. So the PhD is pandemic. <laughs> you know, the H is, is uh, headwinds. It's, it's high interest. It's high inflation. And then the D is the, um, you know, the disruptive nature that has entered our, our industry and many other industries over the last two, three years now. Mm -hmm. Never has it been tougher, but never has there been a creation of, uh, of a demand for being able to execute. You know, you and I have, you know, kind, kind of a cryptic view sometimes of our industry. And it's interesting that uh, 
you, you know, uh, there, there's so many. I know there was like 30 new CEOs and all, all a lot of these different concepts today. And very few of the CEOs actually put their money up. Very few of those CEOs actually put themselves at risk. And we put all our money on the win line for these brands. But not only that, the first rule that, you know, the first new initiative they come up with usually is we're going back to basics. Um, whoever told you to leave them in the first place? And so from a from an execution standpoint, from a delivery of a value proposition uh, for flair, for energy, for preserving the culture that has existed all these decades, that's that has been our mission and will be exemplified in our stake in L, which is probably just a couple of miles away from your home. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, a few. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's about like a 30, 30 to 40 minute drive, depending on the traffic. But it's been, what, 15 years? It was that, that chapter seven that you 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 brought forth which which by the way was an incredibly it, it doesn't that doesn't happen very often you know brands don't just get like wholeheartedly wiped off the map like steak and ale was that is and extremely ben, yeah. rare and it's been 15 years since that brand has been and have you gotten any other any indication besides of the, the the Facebook group that there is interest in this in in enough interest in this concept that that's going to be able to to fuel a comeback after that long? Yeah, well, as I referred back before, you know, I regard these brands as diamonds. They've always had appeal. They've always had um, uh, brought a smile uh, to their face. Everybody has a story. You know, everybody. A lot of folks kind of worked their way through the ranks. Starting at steak and ale, you know, specifically in a casual dining segment, uh, or or Benigas. Norm created a very good team of leadership, um, and again, the culture piece is 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 very important. And I say all the time that if you have people, passion, and culture, and commitment. It will be strategy and tactics every day of the week. I mean, you see a lot of people talk about the, the, the quantitative pieces and the qualitative pieces of the business. Well, that's just the ante to get in. Everybody has to have good food. Everybody has to have good service. And if you don't, you're going to go out of business. But to overcome the taint of the, of the, of the Chapter 7, I think that, you know, we had to get rid of the 47 microwaves that were in the, in the restaurants. There are a lot of, through the bankruptcy, a lot of, a lot of operators bought them for, you know, pennies on the dollar uh, and they were horrible operators. And so when I came in, I, act, I actually had to subtract before I could add uh, because like, I had to get rid of the people that were, were, were not passionate about the brand, would not execute, would do everything in the cheap and then bastardize the, the brands themselves. And so had to clean that up. And that took a couple of years and then reintroduced a new version, a franchise model version where you actually are in danger of getting compelling returns on your investment. And so I, I took 10,000 feet because before, as you know, Jonathan, it was a real estate play more than anything else. They would build a Bennigan's and a, and a stake and ale on three, four acres. They would own the underlying real estate. They went through tremendous sale leaseback kind of uh, programs back then. And, and then they made the decision to, to do the chapter seven, which was, you know, one of their options. But again, uh, it, like you said, it, it's not a reorganization. It's game over. It's a liquidation. And so to rebuild it after all of that, when I saw the the potential of the brands, you know, the team, like my senior vice president of operations, Sean Finn, been with Bendigan's 36 years. So the intellectual capital 
that we represent from a support team standpoint. Uh, we're 100% franchise. And, and I understand I was a franchisee myself, so I understand the dynamic to support and to train and to communicate and to collaborate and to participate with our franchise partners, um, not only here in the U.S., but around the world. And so now we, we're, we're all about, you know, preserving a legacy, building building on the, the, the Bennigan's uh, franchise model, the new steak and ale model, which I think will be hugely successful in Burnsville. Uh, very, very high AUV. I think it'd be a perfect uh, franchise model to replicate. Uh, Roy Arnold and I did over a 15-store deal ourselves just for the Midwest. There's areas of the country now. Jonathan, you've seen it. I won't even go. There's no reason to for us to go to to go to California, as an example. Love the state, love the people, but the politics are are so onerous for a small business. I'm not talking about the big brands that have thousands upon thousands of units. I'm talking about the the independents, the chef front type of units, restaurants where uh, you know when when you have to pay the 16 year old pimple faced kid to bus tables twenty dollars an hour, it really cuts into you into your your profit margins and so i'm looking to where is it franchise friendly where is it business friendly uh like in texas and florida we're focusing on now uh where there you know no state income tax and so there's a with our model intact our franchise model intact there there's an opportunity to create a lot of wealth through the franchising vehicle for the brands now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you're gonna you're gonna uh you're gonna Essentially ignore California, which is sort of like 12% of the nation's GDP. Yeah, well, you know, but small business is 65% of the GDP. And, and there's been a lot of legislature that actually prohibits growth and, you know, has presented some of these headwinds that I talked about. So from California, I'm just going to put it on the side for now. Same mm-hmm. thing with in Oregon. Of course, if there is a, if there is a huge franchisee, that already has an infrastructure built, that already has you know, a lot of restaurants going where they're making money. Uh, and we can see how the whole dynamic works out with how the, 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 you know, the, the different pieces of, of opposition, whether it be a labor or it's permitting or it's building, high costs all the way around. Once we see how that whole shakes out over the next couple of years, I'd be glad to consider California and Washington and Oregon and, and, and the uh, you know, the New Yorks and the Connecticut's and the New Jersey's because, you know, the, the, the numbers have to make sense. I am not going to consciously sign a franchise agreement if I feel in my heart of hearts I don't think the franchisee will make it. Mm-hmm. It's a recipe for disaster. And again, it's, it's a brand that we own. And I'm not trying to, to just to add units, to add units and take the initial fee and then go to the next stop as a CEO and do the same thing. I'm not doing that. I've put my lock and stock, my heart and my soul, and my hard-earned money since I was a kid on the wind line for these brands. So I, I, you know, so I think that makes a statement in terms of credibility. I'm standing side by side with the people that invest in the brands, and that's a big point of differentiation with uh, a lot of the other uh, brands that are out there right now. But with, um, I'm just putting it on hold. There are, there's a, I mean, just with Texas alone, there's another, you know, 100, 200 restaurants that we could build. Uh, same thing in Florida. Uh, and other states that are already in from the Midwest down. And, and so, uh, so I'm going to focus on that first. And, and again, the, the mantra is really about to, you know, preserve the culture, grow intelligently, uh, grow deliberately, and then, you know, restore the integrity back to the brands that they always had in the beginning. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, not to get this, not to get on the California thing, but just to spend a, a, a second and why definitely have considerable concerns about a lot of the regulations in California. I want to point, point out that uh, over the past week, there were two stories, one of which is a Wendy's franchisee this week that filed for bankruptcy. Read that. Yeah. Yeah. That franchisee is based in Florida. Last week, there was a Wingstop franchisee that was acquired um, for what we believe might be, and we there's no real way to check this out, but what might be a record multiple. That franchisee is in California. My suspicion on this is that the restaurant industry tends to be far more resilient than people think they probably are going to adjust. Will they have to pay higher? Will, will prices go up? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But they said to somebody this week, you know what? If people in California do not want to pay higher prices for their chicken wings or for their steak, then they would not uh, support uh, people that have those sorts of regulations. But right. get the government you deserve. But the point is that the industry tends to be more resilient on these sorts of things than people think. And that is just a very big difference. Investors of, in that Wingstop brand, which is in California and apparently is doing very well, literally do not care about the California Fast Act. That is a very worth notable. Anyway, I want to get back to the steak and ale thing and not get distracted by California. Right. Um, and that's like, first of all, uh, you know, the Bennigans, uh, we forget about the, the, the Bennigans thing, which, you know, it, <laughs> you know, that chapter seven almost killed Bennigans as well. Uh, if I recall correctly, there were there was a company owned operation, but then they had the franchise operation and the secured lender basically went in and wholeheartedly replaced the whole board, if we recall correctly. Uh, that is probably the most dramatic bankruptcy filing I can ever recall covering in this business because they basically padlocked the doors and workers showed up one day across the country and suddenly all these Bennigans were closed, which is tough to for I can imagine for the brand, as you mentioned early on, that you keep getting reminded of this. But Bennigans was almost killed in that process, had the secured net lender, not the night before that that all happened, if the secured lender didn't come in and take the franchise business away. And then you would have had to be trying to fix, uh, resurrect a, uh, your second brand rather than just try to fix it. No, that's absolutely right. In fact, there are so many people, Jonathan, that they say that in the interview, do you know that no brand ever has come back from Chapter 7? And uh, the naysayers that Bennigans is dead, Steak and Ale is dead. And I let them talk. Of course, they have the right. They have the right to express their opinion. But I never, uh, you know, my wife, myself, my team, my franchise partners, obviously, we will never be held prisoner by people that that are quick to judge without thinking through the the you know the iconic nature of the brands. I mean, uh, again, when I did my due diligence before taking over the the position, um, I saw that the AUVs for the the for Bennigan's from to the franchise organization was still very high. The restaurants that closed on the chapter seven were corporate stores, obviously. And they were doing, you know, three, four, five million dollars. Then on a not all of them, but some of the, you know, the top 10, 20%. And so why do you close restaurants that are capable of generating these kind of AUVs? Again, 
separate mm-hmm. agenda. You know, I, I try to, I don't even want to spend time with it because it's neither here nor there at this point. It's like, how do you move forward? How do you deal with the, the, the negative Nellies, the naysayers out there? And I said to him at the time, um, I, well, I had a couple of great words, but I said, watch us. And so here it is, mm-hmm. years later, Jonathan, where I've seen a lot of hot concepts come and go. I've seen a lot of brands go sideways. I've seen in all categories. And here we are still standing and growing. So I think the, you know, I, I, I try to emphasize is we're, we didn't, we, we not only survived the Chapter 7, seven we're thriving. Uh, next year, for an example, in addition to the steak and ale, we have another 10 restaurants in queue, be it Bennigan's on the fly, be it Bennigan's, be it steak and ale. And, you know, as a percentage, you, I know you love, you love metrics. As a percentage, that's pretty goddamn good mm-hmm. uh, growth. Oh, I probably shouldn't have said that, but it's probably doggone good uh, for, uh, for when you take a look at the percentage of growth that we're, that we're going to enjoy. And again, I've been, you know, be, because of the investment uh, that we've all made, because I want to preserve the culture and the the iconic nature of these brands, I'm being very slow. I mean, I got I got uh, you know lampooned for you know, why why does it take so long to open up a steak and ale? Is because well, if you thought it was easy, get into the business. <laughs> and when I started this, it only got harder. And so when you mm-hmm. want to build a new building now, it's at least forty or fifty percent higher now from a construction standpoint. You know, because the labor, the materials, the equipment, everything is is increased, as well as, uh, you know, you look at, you know, back to the, the, the PhD, the, the disruption from the supply chain is just now starting to become a little bit normalized. But the normalization isn't back to where it used to be from a price standpoint. It's just that the price increases have lessened on a quarter to quarter basis now. So we're still fighting the good fight. We're still trying to keep our our metrics in the proper order so that we can still generate a unilevel profitability from a franchise standpoint that makes sense. So you can create worth. And then the the legendary restaurant brand consortium is where we can go into, you know, like what we're doing with Roy, we can go into a a Minnesota, as an example, and open Bendigan's on the fly, open up the the full-scale Bendigan's, open up the steak and ales. And it's all about, as you know, market share capture. So if we can take that market share and then create that revenue stream for our franchise groups, be it in any state, then I think we're on to something good. And again, I don't want to be all things to all people. Uh, we're a scratch kitchen. We make things with love and care. And in fact, you know, you'll love this, the Monte Cristo. I've changed the name to the world famous Monte Cristo because nobody can duplicate it. And there's secrets to that. And now I trademarked it. And so we have trademarks like Oh Baby Back Ribs. The, you know, the world famous Monte Cristo, our broccoli bites, our, our death by chocolate. These are not just menu items. These are trademark menu items that are known throughout the country. So, again, reattaching that emotional connection, driving the demand uh, for the brands. I mean, I got people that used to work for Sake and Ale that are having a reunion. They say, Paul, forget about it. We're renting a bus. We're coming to the opening. And I said, well, bring your old uniform because I'm going to put you to work first. Hmm. So we're going to have some fun with all this. I might invite everybody to help me open, you know, because there's such there's such a um, there's such a fun aspect uh, to these brands that I just don't see in other brands. Sometimes, you know, they became dull. There's no fun. There's no energy. There's no vibe. And we're trying to create that through the flair and the table side. Um, But just the fact that we're bringing back this 
this phenomenal steak and ale brand has garnered a lot of support. It got you to give me a call. Yeah, I did. I did. You are on the podcast. So what are you doing to make steak and ale relevant to today? You said that you were making some changes to the to the brand to, to make it relevant to today's consumer because, you know, things have changed in 15 years. Yeah, well, I mean, and the, the flavor profiles have changed some. some mm-hmm. So the recipes, how do you take, I did the same thing with Benigas and work with a lot of chefs. And when, in fact, one of them is right there in, in Minnesota, uh, where how do you take a great recipe and make it better? How do you make it legendary? So we're working with different uh, uh, flavor infusions, different recipe infusions. But like I said, we're also making everything from scratch. Uh, the same thing with we're looking at speakeasy kind of beverages. So it's the classic cocktails. It's a classic martini. It's a classic old fashioned. And 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 the and we think we're thinking it through not only from a recipe standpoint, but a presentation standpoint with regard to our um you know, the different uh, uh, glassware that we're using, the garnishes that we're using, it's going to be fun and different. And so from from the standpoint of being relevant, I think because there's such a dearth of fun and, and, and vibe and activity, bringing that into, and we did the same thing with Benigan's, bringing that, bringing that those components into the operation attracts uh, the other demographics and, and is able to build on, you know, not only the pent up demand, but new trial. And so, uh, again, like I said, I think the, the steak and ale in Minneapolis, because we're not just doing lunch and dinner. We'll do brunch on Sundays. We'll do room service because it's in the in the new named Wyndham. And, and we'll also do um, delivery. So we're going to look at having, you know, a lot of the plates spinning in terms of how do we drive revenue so that the unit economics and the unit level profitability are very strong. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to look like, what did those old steak and ales look like? They kind of had this really weird uh, real estate, or they look like sort of like a German ale house, I think, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, very compartmentalized, but people forget in 1966, you could do something that is forbidden today, which is smoke. And so a lot of the sections were closed off. And, and that's why when smoking became banned everywhere, you know, the open kitchen, the open dining rooms became a little bit more, oh, because you didn't have to split everything off anymore like you used to have to. But I wanted to make it still intimate without having it compartmentalized. So it's still kind of an open floor plan, but we'll have a fireplace. We'll have a very, very intimate bar. We'll have, you know, nice patio. And, you know, even we've, we've even thought through the music to create that vibe, like what we did in Bennigan's. We have 60s, 70s, 80s music, as well as the current music. So we can create that, that energy depending on day part. And so um, it's very well thought out. I would love to say very scientific, but I'm not going to say that we're scientists, but I think it will appeal to the masses. And I think people are looking for something a little different, a little bit more fun. And of course, we will never, we, we will never stray from the value proposition, which I think is strongest in the, in the country. I've seen so many, so many um, different brands now, and you and I both know them, where, uh, oh, you want, you want a hamburger? Well, that's $22. This is casual dining. Oh, you want fries? Well, that's another, you know, depending on the brand, 5 to $7. I think that's, mm. that's ridiculous. I think it's, uh, you know, we, you need to have, uh, you know, the, the right portions at the right price. Our hamburger includes the French fries. I'm not going into an a la carte. We love to bundle it all up so that the value proposition is very strong all by itself. And so, again... A combination of all these things, I think, will build not only the trial, but the sales level 
that will not only be attractive to the consumer, but it would be attractive to the to the franchise potential candidate as well. You know, I, I, I've been saying this a long time, and I think you'll agree with me, you know, because uh, you always read the doom and gloom in casual dining. Casual dining's dead. Well, you know what? Casual dining gave up on casual dining. The, the consumer, the guests, they never gave up on it. They want a social outlet. They want to go to a bar. They want to have a couple of drinks. They want a good meal. They want great service. They don't want their server uh, texting back their friend or, or doing TikTok while they're taking the order. I, I think I, I don't know where everything got so lax. And don't tell me because, you know, labor is so hard to find. I think good team members are gravitated to what I call benign dictatorship. If you have rules and leadership and you train people and train people and you treat them well and you pay them well and you reward them and you talk to them, you communicate, people will stay. I mean, look at my team. I mean, I, I haven't heard of too many people that are uh, in organizations where there's you know 30 and 20 years of tenure. Uh, that's unheard of. People just... It's a revolving door. I just read it the other day where I think it's something like 35 new CEOs this year alone. It's not the leader. It's the culture. It was ruined somehow. And so I think that by preserving that and then having that evidence by our brand and execution that, you know, we'll eke out enough of the market share in enough states and enough countries to have that the, those brands, that legendary restaurant brands that will operate with integrity, not just for now. But the legacy that Norm created, listen, I'm aware I'm standing on his shoulders, will perpetuate itself. Paul, this was great. Really appreciate you joining me on the podcast this week. We must be going over the half hour. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This is Jonathan. Great. And you got a personal invitation from me to you. Um, again, uh, bring clothes that you don't mind getting dirty from busting tables. And that should do it for this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, which was edited, as always, by Spoons. Artwork by Nico Hines. You may find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. And please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host, podcast producer, and the editor-in-chief of Restaurant Business. Thank you for listening. <music>